Dear friends, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. I would like to recognize in the distinguished public that joins us today, Mr. and Dr. Kevin Casas, a former Vice President of Costa Rica, and Mr. Francisco Chacon, a former Minister and uh, Congressman of Costa Rica. Very good. For the first time in years, trade has been at the centerpiece of political debate in Washington, and much more so than many issues in Congress, the debate over trade has been very dramatic and unpredictable, to say the least. In mid-June, a large lineup of Democrats in the House appeared to kill President Obama's ability to negotiate the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, which uh, would be the most significant U.S. trade agreement since NAFTA. But then, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, TPP jolted back to life this week. Defying all predictions, both houses of Congress have now granted President Obama the fast track authority he needs to complete the trade agreement. That makes it extremely likely that America will soon join a huge free trade agreement spanning 12 countries across the Pacific Rim, encompassing 40% of the global economy. Still, there is increasing domestic opposition to free trade. The Democratic Party and its broadly assembly of trade unions have largely turned against it. And even Hillary Clinton, formerly an ardent uh, free trader, has hinted that she opposes the TPP. Many Democrats now view President Clinton's signature trade initiative to have been the NAFTA as a disaster. It was only because of the support of um, some Republicans the President Obama's Trade Promotion Authority was able to pass Congress. Meanwhile, there is much debate how important is trade to the global economy, and in unprecedented shift, global GDP is now growing at a faster rate than global trade. So just how important is trade to the global economy <coughs> will be a problem if, um, if countries turn more inward, what effects will increased or decreased trade have on the world? To help piece together these complicated issues, we are fortunate to have a superb team of experts. I would like to thank them very much for coming. First, is our keynote speaker, former White House Chief of Staff, Mac McClarty. Mr. McClarty, who served under President Bill Clinton, is a trade expert who played an integral role in the passage of NAFTA and served as the President's Special Envoy to the Americas. He is currently the Chairman of McClarty Associates. It would be hard to imagine a person as well-suited 
to address this topic as Mr. McClarty. <clears throat> Personally, I must add that I owe Mr. McClarty a debt of gratitude. He was extremely kind and helpful to me in my initial steps here as an ambassador back in the 90s. Mr. McClarty will present us with a keynote address. However, I would like to uh, present now our two speakers. One is Don Armando Gonzalez, Chief Editor of La Nación, the leading newspaper in Costa Rica. Mr. Gonzalez is actually my boss at the newspaper for which I've been writing since 1982, so I have to behave today. We're also joined by uh, Evan Ellis, a professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. He's a star speaker on free trade and a good friend of Hudson for many, many years. Thank you again for coming, and thanks again to our distinguished guests for joining us. We begin the keynote presentation of Mr. McClarty. Good afternoon uh, to our distinguished guests and to everyone who's taken time to join us. Thank you very much. Uh, Jaime, thank you for your very warm and personal words. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be at the Hudson Institute today. It's a venerable and respected organization that for many years has played an important role, not only working to set, but also implement the policy agenda. And I am particularly uh, pleased to be with such distinguished panelists, with Armando Gonzalez and Evan Ellis. And they both uh, have written and spoken in such a, a serious and thoughtful and depthful way, and I'm looking forward, after my brief remarks, to being part of a panel discussion. It's always a real treat to join a good friend of long standing. Ambassador Darren Bloom has been an important voice. Uh, conscious across the hemisphere, both in his home country of Costa Rica as well as in our country. I mean, I think we first got to know each other in 1997 when I traveled to Costa Rica for President Clinton's visit there, which really exceeded expectations in many ways. You were advisor to a presidential candidate at the time, and it set the stage really for the CAFTA-DR trade bill that Pass later, and that speaks to sustained engagement and how important that is from the White House and our country on issues. But we really got to know Jaime and his wonderful and elegant wife, Gina, because we were next door neighbors for many years in the Colorama area. And we shared so many good times and some sad times together. We developed a friendship, a level of trust that uh, is still very meaningful to this day. Now, Jaime, I must tell you that, one, we uh, were able to overcome Harry Truman's famous quip about friends and dogs in Washington, and we established an enduring friendship. But as I was commenting earlier, uh, one quick antidote, we had President Clinton in our home for an event that was closed to the White House press. This was in the final year of his presidency. And there were about 25 members of the White House press corps that were following the president that evening, making multiple stops. So this was a dilemma. What were we going to do with the press corps during the hour plus that the president was going to be in our home? 
So I approached Jaime and I said, Jaime, could we possibly use your and Gina's residence? And Jaime, with that twinkle in his eye, said, oh, we'll be glad to do it. He said, now, Mac, do you want me to take them to the basement and lock them in? <laughs> or do you want me to greet them with a warm Latin American hand of hospitality and give them refreshments and food? I was tempted for a moment, I must tell you. But of course, I chose the, the latter, and I'll always be grateful for that. So it's a pleasure to be here today with Jaime and his colleagues and all of you. The programs that Ambassador Darren Bloom runs here at the Hudson Institute are provocative. They're timely. They make us think. And I certainly can think of no other subject that fits that criteria and framework better than trade. Trade can be controversial, as we've seen. We have had a roller coaster-like ride on the Trade Promotion Authority, as Jaime noted. And I must say that I kind of feel like Harry Truman, because the original invitation, Jaime, said the apparent defeat of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. <laughs> and so the invitation had to be revised, and it was for good reason. It looked, it, it look, it, and it may, I hope you don't have to revise it again <laughs> after these remarks. Uh, but it has been a, a roller coaster ride, and it suggests how complicated that trade can be. It's become kind of a four letter word sometimes in Washington. But despite all of that, I am a pro trade centrist Democrat. I have strongly believed in bipartisanship and had the great privilege to work with President Bush 41 during his time as president as a leading business executive, not in the White House administration officially. But I believe that compromise is not a dirty word, and we should work toward principal compromise whenever possible. And I have consistently supported and fought for expanded trade broadly, and more specifically in the Western Hemisphere. Trade expansion is a commitment that I maintain because to me, trade expansion has proven to be a very valuable and effective element and tool for the United States and for our trading partners in the hemisphere and beyond. Trade and good sensible trade agreements develop, establish, and solidify the rules of the road, the rules of the game. And those good agreements are largely consistent with our interest here in this country and our values, and I would submit the interest and values of our neighbors in the hemisphere. Trade opens markets, and it keeps them open even when there are political temptations otherwise. It helps build capital, technology, management, and best practices in addition to the exchanges of goods and services. And I think trade clearly creates efficiencies and lowers cost and builds consumer well-being. And it promotes the sort of continued economic and commercial contact that strengthens democratic governance. And at the bottom line, I think trade is a reflection of the world we are living in and reality. All of you understand how interconnected our world has become, both in terms of communication, in terms of capital flows, in terms of ideas, in terms of trade. 
So I am very pleased, and yes, I am relieved that TPA is trending favorably. And of course, we'll be following, like all of you, closely uh, the TAA debate. Uh, Leader Pelosi's statements were certainly encouraging. But having said that, as one of the newspapers captured today, there are fierce battles ahead. So we don't need to get ahead of ourselves in terms of this being a certainty, although I agree with Jaime's assessment, as I usually do, that there is a favorable trend line. It does take a difficult, grinding, one-vote-at-a-time slog, requiring unwavering resolve and purpose, and it certainly involves the strong leadership of the President and the White House to get a trade agreement accomplished. I'll never forget riding in from Andrews with President Clinton, and I raised with him uh, during our drive time Mr. President, we need to go forward with the NAFTA. And the President, in an unusual way, kind of turned and was a bit terse, which he normally was never with me. He said, Mac, I've told you I'm ready to do this three times. Why are you asking me again? I said, Mr. President, I just wanted to be absolutely positively sure you were ready to move forward. Because on any trade agreement, there's always voices both within any administration, Democrat or Republican, and certainly differing voices in the Congress. And as Chief of Staff, I wanted to make absolutely positively certain that I had a clear understanding with my president, which, of course, we did. <coughs> but I've also learned, I think, with having spent a lifetime in politics, that many times the most consequential actions and decisions are sometimes, as you know from your public service, the most difficult. The Trade Promotion Authority will allow the President to conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations with our partners in North America, South America, Oceania, and East Asia. And he will also be able then to rapidly advance negotiations to conclude an agreement with our European partners. That is a wide and sweeping agreement, as Ambassador Darren Bloom noted. But to this audience, I would note and respectfully submit that the implications of U.S. policy regarding the trade agreement, which I'm sure Armando and Evan will speak to, are also critically important. In the first instance, TPA will give both our friends and competitors the clear signal that the United States aims to remain a leader in the vision of open market economies. This is critical. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so does the global economy. Fair or not, there is some perception the United States is retreating from the hemisphere. We've all heard this. I really don't see it that way. I see Vice President Biden very engaged in the Caribbean, in Central America. I see Secretary Kerry, despite the enormous responsibilities and challenges he has, be engaged in the region. Secretary Pritzker has particularly been a strong voice with Mexico and beyond. Secretary Moniz, who is married to a wonderful Brazilian uh, PhD, has been very active in his discussions with Brazil regarding energy and the environment. So I see a pretty broad-gauged effort by the administration. But having said that, there's no way better to convince others of our leadership than to exercise it. Because if we're not expanding trade in the hemisphere, other formal agreements are going forward with or without the United States. 
But as I noted, these agreements strengthen and solidify relationships. And the real kicker is then we have the ability to be at the table to shape and mold and reach final agreement on these discussions. If not, they proceed without us. And these things matter not just in Asia and Europe, but in the region, as I noted. And NAFTA is a good example of that. NAFTA was passed in 1994. That was 10 years before Facebook was launched. Email was new, believe it or not. And the only social media at that time was the telephone, a landline, that is. So my point is that technology has fundamentally altered our lives. Think about a car you would have bought in 1994 and think about buying a vehicle today and the difference in technology. Think about what a difference that horizontal drilling has made in terms of our energy supply, where the North American continent has <coughs> become a real source of supply as opposed to the scarcity that we once had. I could suggest many other examples, and so could you. So my point is that TPA will allow us to update the North American Free Trade Agreement, which we need to do, and bring this agreement forward into this century. I think that will be beneficial not only to the United States, Mexico, and Canada, but also to Chile and Peru. And it will help eventually bring in nations like Costa Rica, like Colombia and Panama, into an emerging Pacific region and the Pacific Alliance, which I think is quite an important development. What I'm trying to say is that the TPP will provide the opportunity to build a broader free trade area, maybe not in a formal way, but it will be a catalyst to revitalize trade within the region. And in that regard, I certainly hope that it will catalyze relationship with Brazil, and I believe it will. President Rousseff comes to the United States next week. There's no question that trade, investment, commerce will be on the agenda between Xi and President Obama. I'll have the opportunity to be with Minister Montero, whom I visited with before, as well as President Rousseff at our luncheon with Vice President Biden. I think it is a promising time for Brazil and America to meet at the highest levels. You know, we don't think about the hemisphere quite in the same strategic way that we did in the Cold War. But yet if we stop to think about it, nations still use their foreign policy and economic interest to promote their own interest. And there's no better practitioner of this these days than China. When I was in the White House in the 1990s, it was thought that our chief Asian competitor was Japan. China was in a different place, just beginning their long economic march, without much profile in Latin America and the Caribbean. But China has entered into the hemisphere with breathtaking speed and critical mass. China is now Brazil's top trading partner. Uh, that's the same for Chile and Peru. It's the second largest trading partner for Argentina and Cuba. It's building links with Colombia. And of course, China has offered support to Ecuador, Venezuela, and several Caribbean countries. Now, from my view, these emerging relationships are remaking, or at least reshaping, the Western Hemisphere. And in many ways, I would say that it's on balance positive that that's the case. Economic investment creates jobs. It helps buffer economic downturns. 
Additionally, China has capital to invest in excess uh, capacity to employ. But I also strongly believe that it is important that these expanding links, as they move forward, are consistent with our regional interest and values, not just the United States, but the countries within the hemisphere. And particularly, Armando, you can certainly appreciate this in terms of transparency, the rule of law, labor rights, and the environment. Those are critical. So what it really means is the United States is facing more competition in the region. I think we'll be able to meet that competition and get our market share, get our fair share, but only if we are engaged and at the table to do so. Otherwise, I think we let a natural market move away from us, and that is not a good thing for the citizens of our country. I would also say we need to include Canada and Mexico to join the TTIP negotiations. After all, they already have free trade agreements with many of the countries that are going to be involved in those discussions. And the same would be in terms of Chile, Peru, and others. And I'd like to take one more step forward, and, and that is to, to, to have a race to the top, so to speak, to bring up the standards of existing trade agreements if the Trans-Pacific Partnership is concluded. I think it's an opportunity to do that, and I think it will be an excellent harmonization. Finally, and Jaime alluded to it, uh, despite all of the encouraging news in the last three days, there's clearly strongly held views on the other side of the equation of trade. Many are sincerely, deeply, and emotionally held. I understand that, and I respect that. There may be a lot of other factors involved, as, as there usually are in any uh, political vote or calculation. But if you take a step back, there's also a Pew poll, which is a very credible poll, that shows 58% of the people in our country basically believe agreements with other nations are favorable. So what it likely suggests, as many of you know who have been involved in the political process, Voices on the left and the right are loud and shrill, strongly held views that are shaping the debate. We could get into talk about how campaigns are financed, but that's for another day. But I think if you look at the overwhelming uh, data, it suggests there is a, a large and growing support and understanding that trading with other countries, engaging with other countries, reflects reality, as I noted earlier. And I think it's particularly noteworthy that it's 69% favorable with millennials and 71% favorable with Hispanics. And that's going to be a key voter constituency in this upcoming election. And it just stands to reason if you're engaged in Latin America, that should help with those two groups, particularly with Hispanics. So to close and as we move into our panel discussion, to be strong <coughs> abroad, we've got to be strong at home. But to remain strong at home, I would respectfully submit for your consideration, we've got to be engaged abroad. Trade and international engagement on a bipartisan basis have made the United States strong. And trade with our natural partners in the Western Hemisphere has built a stronger, largely more democratic, 
and a more vibrant hemisphere than otherwise would be the case. It's not easy. It's not non-controversial. In fact, it's hard, hard work. But it's the right thing to do. In my judgment, it is time for us to move forward. Jaime, it's been a pleasure to join you today at Hudson. I look forward to our discussion with Armando and Evan. Thank you very much. That was a very enlightening presentation, and I always take very seriously what, uh, what Max says. <laughs> uh, now, I'm pleased to turn the podium to Mr. Armando Gonzalez, whom I omitted mentioning in his CV that he did his graduate studies in journalism at Columbia University, uh, not too long ago. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you for allowing me to address you on this issue, which is of vital importance to my country as it is to yours. I am a journalist, and I do hope my remarks are satisfactory to Ambassador Darren Bloom, lest I be locked in the basement after <laughs> this. <laughs> um, I, I bring you a Central American perspective. And why would this be relevant at a moment when you are discussing a trade agreement with a much larger portion of the world uh, and that reaches into uh, deep into the Pacific. Well, I think it's relevant because I can't help witnessing the discussion that is going on today uh, to recall the CAPTA uh, negotiations. Many of the same arguments, many of the same myths, and even some of the same participants appear in uh, the current discussion. So I think there is a link between our experience in Central America and what is going on in the U.S. today. Um, I have to recall an anecdote. Um, of in, in, the, in Costa Rica, we couldn't agree on passing uh, CAPTA. Our Congress was deadlocked. There were several procedural resources that were being employed uh, to postpone, postpone votes, we couldn't come to a decision. So eventually, what the government did was said, okay, we will use um, a referendum, which is a constitutionally established uh, possibility in Costa Rica. We will use a referendum to see if there's a yes or no on, on CAPTA. So we went to a referendum. And it was, it was a political campaign, a full-fledged political campaign, okay? And the yes took it by three points, was it? Uh, by three points. That's how close it came, okay? Um, and uh, the no was highly nurtured by, uh, by myths, by some of the myths that uh, are resurfacing 
in this Trans-Pacific uh, debate. Uh, and the proof of this is that the next elections, the next national elections, okay, the no parties got a very small minority of the national vote, uh, which basically indicated that uh, people were voting no on CAPTA because they were afraid, afraid, scared by those myths. We had, in the final days of that whole debate, we had a visit by two distinguished uh, U.S. legislators who arrived in Costa Rica. They were not, they were invited by the no faction um, to tell people in Costa Rica how terrible CAFTA would be for our country. Um, when Congressman uh, uh, Michael Michaud and Senator Bernie Sanders uh, arrived in Costa Rica and met with the press and addressed the problems that CAFTA would eventually produce. Not a word was spoken about losing U.S. jobs. They spoke not a word in Costa Rica about the loss of U.S. jobs because it would be a hard sell to tell Costa Ricans, the reason I oppose this is because I fear that jobs will come down here. <laughs> okay, that would be um, a big plus for the yes in Costa Rica. But not a word was spoken about that. Uh, however, many words were spoken about terrible consequences for our country. Can anyone believe that free trade will produce a lose-lose situation? There will be losses for all. I oppose free trade in the United States because we're going to lose jobs to you Costa Ricans, but those jobs that you Costa Ricans are going to gain are not really a gain because you're going to lose all of these other things. And that's what they actually came to preach, that it was a lose-lose proposition. That didn't make sense, so it didn't fly. What we did was we went into their pages on the internet uh, and looked up the reasons why they opposed CAFTA here and published them there and their visit back backfired. Okay? So this um, uh, argumentation that goes both ways that warns all parties of the terrible consequences of free trade can obviously not be sustained because it's incoherent. Free trade is actually a win-win situation. Yes, with adjustments along the way because that is the whole idea. The whole idea is to take advantage of the comparative advantages each party has and thus create riches for all. Um, legislative standardization was also an issue. And it is an issue now, as you discuss the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In Costa Rica, it so happens that some of our labor laws are more advantageous to workers than yours, for example. So, uh, we had no problem 
with accepting uh, the standards that CAPTA has because ours are even higher. But what the note did was say, as in, to some degree is being say, said today with the Trans-Pacific, is that the adjustment of internal laws would be such that many of our uh, labor protections would be standardized uh, to the bottom, low. They would, they would be lowered. Um, and so it was said, in Costa Rica we have, every worker has uh, the right to a 13th month of pay every year. Well, that was going to disappear. Uh, you remember the aguinaldo was going to disappear. Our very advanced uh, uh, labor law, the Código de Trabajo, was going to be overruled by some sort of international um, uh, legislation. It was going to be displaced. Well, I was paid my 13 month, 13th month on December, and I hope to be paid that much uh, this next December again. And we still have exactly the same labor laws uh, that we had before with additions that have made them better. Um, so legislative standardization. Yes, it is an issue that was brought up then, and it is being brought up now. Um, our labor laws are still in effect, and our social security system is far from going broke due to the price of medicines. Now, does that sound familiar? Because it is an issue that has again come up. Back then, when we negotiated CAFTA, uh, the no said that um, intellectual property protection um, would cause, in effect, our social security system to go broke because the price of medicine would be such that we would not be able to meet it. Our social security is far from being broke many years after uh, we entered the agreement. Uh, it is still there. And if there is any uh, financial menace to it, it's because of internal structural factors that have to do with uh, tremendous entitlements and salaries that are exorbitant in comparison to our market, uh, all of which have been, have been put in place uh, basically by the influence of the people who were on the side of no at that time. But medicine and intellectual property, no. They are not threatening our social security system. Labor laws are in place. The social security is not going broke because of the price of medicines. Uh, you have yet, you the U.S., have yet to steal our water, <laughs> drill holes in our continental platform to extract its riches with no consideration for the environment, establish an arms industry in our peaceful nation, or trade in human organs. <laughs> yeah. um, in the United States, Congressman Michaud discredited CAFTA by pointing out the limitations of our markets. They are small, he said, and therefore there was really no new opportunity for U.S. trade. Last year, the U.S. exported to CAFTA DR countries 31.1 billion and imported 28.4 billion with a positive trade balance to the U.S. 
of 2.75 billion. We're going to have to work on that. <laughs> Total commerce with our modest market reached 59.5 billion. Whether you feel those numbers are significant or not, the U.S. would be remiss if it were to judge trade agreements solely on the numbers. There are also important strategic interests. And this brings me back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The well-respected economist Paul Krugman was quoted as saying he would be undismayed and even a bit relieved if the TPP just fades away. The problem is it will not. The process began in 2005 as a trade agreement between Chile, New Zealand, Brunei, and Singapore without U.S. participation. Seven other nations are actively negotiating and four have announced their interest. If one looks at the map, the agreement would encompass the enormity of our Pacific coast from the Strait of Magellan to Alaska with the small interruption of the Ecuadorian coast and the shores of Central America for the time being because the agreement is being negotiated with an open model which will, will allow other nations to join in the future. That's a lot of coast and a lot of beaches. <laughs> the deal belongs to the Americas as much as it does to other nations in the Pacific. In its current state, the Trans-Pacific Partnership nations represent an annual GDP of 28 trillion, roughly 40% of glo global GDP, as Ambassador Darren Bloom pointed out, and one-third of world trade. It is also the fastest growing region of the world. The U.S. has the opportunity to participate in shaping the agreement and integrating its economy into this vast market. China has reacted to the Trans-Pacific Partnership by stepping up negotiations with other Asian and American nations, and here is where Central American or where a Central American or maybe a Latin American perspective may also be useful. China is pressing for trade deals throughout Latin America as well as in Asia. Costa Rica is no exception. It is also investing in strategic areas of our economies and understands the importance of a detailed legal framework to those investments. Where is China investing in Costa Rica? Telecommunications. They want to invest in ports, but they were beaten by the Dutch to a, a large mega project. Uh, um, they are investing in infrastructure. They are investing in, oh, there is the intention of putting together a refinery, an oil refinery. So they're all investments in very strategic areas. And they are not waiting for the free trade agreement that we have already signed and is up for ratification to go through. Um, they are making these investments and they're pushing these deals before even that trade agreement uh, goes through. But they are pushing for the trade agreement. Um, Intra-regional trade deals are also springing up with no U.S. participation. The Bolivarian Alliance 
for the peoples of our America, inspired by former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, has 11 signatories. Mercosur, the South American common market, encompasses five nations, and there are 221 free trade agreements in effect or in the works in Asia, including 114 that are already concluded. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations with 10 members has free trade agreements with China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, with the noticeable exclusion of, yes, the United States. The New York Times quoted Shunpei Takemori, a Japanese university professor, in the sense that China is pushing, and if the U.S. just stands aside, it would be a tragedy. That quote presents the case very bluntly. Therefore, the question we have to answer is not the first one posed uh, in the invitation to this event, uh, which is the potential decline of free trade. The question, rather, is if the United States is willing to participate, because no, it won't fade away. Thank you. I would like to turn the podium now to Dr. Evanelis. After Dr. Ellis's presentation, we'll open a space for questions and comments. Thank you very much, Ambassador Darren Bloom. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Ambassador Darren Bloom and the Hudson uh, Institute for the opportunity to uh, be part of this uh, very distinguished uh, group today. It's uh, quite an honor to be able to share a podium with uh, with with Mac McClarty, um, as well as with uh, with Armando Gonzalez, and and, and also to have uh, your interest here today. This very uh, good turnout. Um, what I would like to do is, is to take a strategic look at what the TPP and some of the other trade initiatives that we are seeing across the Pacific mean from the perspective of the United States and Latin America. So I'm going to broaden the comments out uh, just a bit. At the same time, um, obviously it's difficult uh, coming from my own position uh, within uh, the Strategic Studies uh, Institute of the U.S. Army War College. Uh, as many of you know, it's, uh, there's a uh, official requirement that all DOD personnel must bring PowerPoint to any presentation <laughs> that we give. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't uh, long ago, just about two months ago, that uh, our new Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, made a rather interesting statement about uh, the importance of the TPP, that uh, the TPP was an important as another aircraft carrier. Um, although a lot of interesting things have been said about the TPP, uh, what grabbed me about that statement by uh, a very distinguished person who is not uh, oriented towards hyperbole is the connection that he made between this largely economic issue and the strategic interest of the United States. And in a broader interest, what TPP and many other agreements are about is not just economics, but about the position of the United States and the prosperity of like-minded countries in this new, as of yet new, 21st century. As we look at 
the Pacific. Um, oftentimes we talk about the pivot to Asia or China or Asian countries. And what we forget is that the Pacific is not just Asia. The Pacific is also Canada. The Pacific is Costa Rica. The Pacific is Chile. The Pacific is Mexico, etc. Oftentimes when we make policy towards the Pacific, we forget one complete side of the Pacific. And so I was very welcome to see uh, the Central American perspective provided by Armando Gonzalez as, as well. And also, as was alluded by both of the speakers, um, the TPP was only one of many different alternative possibilities of what the emerging regime of the Pacific might look like in the 20th, uh, 21st century. Uh, the Chinese, uh, when they hosted the APEC uh, Leader Summit in Beijing just a few months ago, put forward a alternative, kind of a TPP light, if you will, somewhat more strategically oriented towards the Chinese way of, of looking at trade, something called the free trade area of the Asia Pacific, which I'm told uh, still lingers with, with life as an alternative if TPP does not go through. There are other things apart from trade agreements. For example, the fact that China, as it engages with the, um, the nations, uh, basically uh, the uh, um, of, of CELAC, uh, basically uh, the region excluding the United States and, and Canada, um, is pursuing a way of engaging that basically excludes the U.S. and Canada and the established inter-American system in, in the OAS uh, from that way of, of, of doing business across the Pacific. And so what I come down to is what I want to plant is my fundamental point here today. The importance for the U.S. and like-minded nations of defining a regime of not only formal rules but also informal practices in which we all can live and have the opportunity uh, not only to prosper but to reap the benefits of our own good or less good as they may be at times policies. In doing so, it's important that we craft such a regime of both formal and informal rules, considering not just the Asian side of the Pacific, but our counterparts in the Latin American and the Canadian, basically this side of the Pacific as well. So as we talk about that, and thus the importance of making sure that that regime is one that is dominated by things such as rule of law, free trade, the protection of, of intellectual property, and democratic governance, things that which explicitly the TPP uh, seeks to, to raise standards in, um, but the TPP is only the beginning in that. What we also can recognize is that within the Latin American side, and I'm going to focus very much on the Latin American side just because it gets such short shrift when we talk about the regime of the Pacific. But when we focus on Latin America, what we really see is a new debate that is emerging. And it's a debate that is recognizable in terms of the 20th century and yet different because it's something that's coming from the Americas itself. Um, on the one side, uh, loosely you find the U.S., Canada, and the nations of the Pacific Alliance taking a position that advocates free markets, um, a model of engagement based in strengthening the rule of law, uh, achieving efficiencies within their trade and other structures, within their logistic structures, um, finding ways to achieve synergies between the nations, not only in terms of physical good flows, but also intellectual property, uh, in terms of the flow of ideas and personnel. Uh, on the other side, without uh, prematurely bemoaning uh, you know, organizations such as ALBA or the models pursued by Argentina and Brazil, and recognizing the diversity within those organizations 
it's fair to say that all of those models basically put greater emphasis on the role of the state. The role of the state not in necessarily advancing commerce, but brokering commerce. Not in achieving access to markets, but regulating access to the markets in the name of a subset of, of their people. Um, the interest of the state in redressing inequalities rather than necessarily a focus in expanding the pie for all. So the interesting thing about this is there is not, as we saw in the 1960s and 70s in Latin America, a deep disagreement about whether to do business with Asia, but there is a fundamental divide emerging in the region about how to do business with Asia. And my point here, and the point that I would like to take forward for U.S. policymakers and others, is that the way that debate turns out has fundamental implications for the future of the United States and like-minded countries. Having said that, and I'm not going to dwell too much on the details uh, given the amount of time that we have and in the interest of, of asking questions, but on the Pacific Alliance side, obviously, as many of you know, there has been rapid progress, uh, the achievement of an integrated market, financial markets uh, through the MILA mechanism and, and, and things such as that, and future plans to do even more with respect to uh, uh, greater flows and interchanges um, in terms of universities and intellectual capital. At the same time, we've seen some progress. Uh, there was actually just the ratification of, of a free trade agreement between Panama and Mexico, which may pave the way for Panama to be the next uh, entry into the organization formally, although that's still a bit up in the air. Um, there's been a lot of interest in terms of observer states. And yet, I am also worried about the future of the ideas represented. <coughs> One week from today, the leaders of the Pacific Alliance countries will meet in beautiful Paracas, Peru, um, as Peru takes the presidency pro tem of the Pacific Alliance. And yet, I've sensed, if we look back at Punta Mita, Mexico, the, the last Pacific Alliance meeting, and as we look toward what seems to be on the agenda for the current one, a certain loss of momentum. And that momentum, um, there are some smaller issues. There was a, a ruling by a, a constitutional court in Colombia, uh, which indicated that Colombia's way in entering the alliance had been, um, had been unconstitutional. And while my Colombian colleagues assure me that it's just a small detail, it's one that has not yet been fully addressed. Uh, similarly, um, the, um, the very credible uh, current government of Costa Rica has been perhaps less than enthusiastic about pursuing free trade. Um, and indeed, uh, the loss of its legislative majority has also created some difficulties in streamlining the laws that must be streamlined by which Costa Rica moves from becoming an observer to the alliance into being a, a full-fledged member. Um, also, of course, there is significant distraction across the, um, across the members of the, of the alliance. Um, it's a bit of a perfect storm. We have the resignation of, of the cabinet of President Bachelet in Chile and amidst various uh, corruption scandals. We have Peru worried about its own uh, scandal uh, uh, involving it, its intelligence apparatus. Um, we have uh, President Peña Neto uh, somewhat consumed by, by a series of, of, of scandals involving Grupo Higa and, and, and others, um, certain uh, properties in Valle del Bravo etc. Um, and without weighing in on the scandals, the issue is that these things have been a distraction to the must more important national and regional issues of the progress that must be made in free trade. Now, having said that, 
Alba and, the, um, and Argentina and Brazil have some of their own challenges. As I indicated here, it's a very different model that Alba, Argentina, and Brazil are pursuing, protecting domestic interest, focusing on regulating, focusing on who gets the public contracts in a state-to-state -state sense as much as um, you know, to what degree do those benefit the society. And yet, recognizing that diversity of or orientation, to me, um, being, having been for the past 12 years someone who closely, closely follows Chinese engagement with the Americas, the irony to me is the state-to-state -state engagement puts those countries at their worst and puts China at its best in terms of what it does most effectively, which is the coordination of the apparatus of the state, its quasi-state financial system, and its quasi-state-owned companies. At the same time, what happens on the ALBA side is also highly uncertain. Um, you have the ongoing implosion of Venezuela as it runs out of financial reserves and, and, and experiences other difficulties. You have questions as to what comes next, uh, the transferability of the model in, in Bolivia to a broader uh, regional model. Um, although President Correa in Ecuador has arguably done some very effective things in terms of building up his nation's infrastructure, um, he is, at least in some circles, rumored to not play well with others, and there's some question as to thus uh, the degree to which an Ecuador-type model can lead um, ALBA. When one looks even at Nicaragua, um, we're in a critical moment with the Nicaraguan Canal, approximately six months behind schedule um, and experiencing some serious challenges according to their own published schedule. The idea being that the geographic position of Nicaragua and the resources that could come from the canal could make the Nicaraguan voice a very important voice in understanding where the statist model goes in the Pacific. And yet at the same time, if Nicaragua and the canal project collapse, um, that also will have very significant implications for where we see Alba go. Brazil goes without saying uh, the issues, including uh, questions of the possible uh, calls for resignation of President Dilma Rousseff, uh, as well as um, basically the future of the BRICS Bank, which would impose more of a, a China-funded um, model with respect to development. Um, but essentially, with the difficulties in Brazil right now, um, Brazil being out of money, and some of the other BRICS members, especially Russia, also experiencing problems. And so overall, we see significant uncertainty on both sides, let alone ideas such as, for example, what will be the future role of CELAC as a multilateral organization engaging across the Pacific, as China wishes it to. Um, the question of what will slowing growth in the PRC mean? And to me, the piece that's not often talked about in this context is that slowing growth in China potentially adversely impacts both the pro-free trade regime Peru and Chile will be adversely impacted because of their dependence on commodity exports. And at the same time, Venezuela, Ecuador, and, and others will also be seriously impacted as well. And so, um, to me, the way that the slowing growth of China not only shakes out economically, but the way it shakes out politically is of significance. So, I wanted to conclude with a few recommendations, and I'll try to be brief with these. But uh, clearly, one of the things that I personally believe that is a greater need for US policymakers is to take more of an integrated trans-Pacific approach to our strategy. Too often, we have a very effective Asia strategy team, whether in state or DOD and elsewhere, and a very effective um, uh, Western Hemisphere team. But I believe we spend too little time thinking about how to integrate both sides of the Pacific as we formulate strategy towards those nations. 
Also, and I think uh, our previous speakers already alluded to this, the importance of articulating values. And this, as, um, as, as, as Mr. McClarty suggested, really takes presidential leadership. In other words, to articulate why do we believe that free trade and the rule of law and these type of things bring greater prosperity um, and, and, and greater good for the peoples of our shared region. And doing that requires not only words, but also the use of examples, whether positive examples, nations such as Chile, who in adherence to strong institutions and free trade have achieved remarkable progress for their people, and negative examples, um, arguably, to be perfectly frank, um, the false promises of populism, of Bolivarian 20th century socialism, um, and the ways in, in which those types of exploitation by populist leaders of those false hopes have proven not to be the answer in creating prosperity. At the same time, whole of government, making trade work requires effective uh, trade institutions, it requires effective ports, it requires effective use of financial regulation, etc. These are ways <coughs> in which U.S. capabilities in terms of whole-of-government approaches must work to help strengthen those institutions. We have a vested interest in making sure that free and effective trade work for our partner nations in the hemisphere, and I think we can work in whole-of-government approaches to make sure that they see the fruits of those free trade. More forcefully advocating the opening of APEC, um, countries and, and key stakeholders and partners of the U.S., such as Colombia, have been um, quietly screaming for some time that they wish, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons for the close reproachment that we've seen between Colombia and Russia, which to some degree threatens Colombia's strategic interests, is Colombia's hope that maybe Russia will support its position in the opening of APEC. Um, we have a duty, I think, to push um, for a broader APEC. Um, Export-import bank um, goes without saying, but I think as someone who is on the right side of the political spectrum, that uh, this is an area where um, you know, not everything that comes from government is necessarily bad, um, and, and we need to fight for these interests. I did say that. Um, and, uh, um, and also, we have things at the subnational level we can do. For If you think about the quality of our educational institutions, um, the programs that we have, the connections that we have to help our Asian counterparts from Japan, from Korea, from, from, from other places, to understand and make context to do business in Latin America, as well as we in the United States have some of the best Asia studies, China studies programs there are, the capabilities of the United States to work with our Latin American counterparts to help them in constructive pro-trade rule of law ways establish business contacts with our Asian contacts through U.S. institutions. And finally, um, uh, it's important not to leave China out of this, but rather um, in the sense of leaving a door open by which uh, the type of rule of law regime we want to create is a rule of law regime which is open to China for that opportunity to prosper within a system of established rules. And there are ways that we can work together with China in terms of, of, of working together to have healthy trans-Pacific financial institutions, um, healthy um, and efficient transportation systems and custom clearances processes, even if we do not achieve agreement with China on the specific TPP issues, trade accounting, avoiding triangulation, um, avoiding things that come with expanded trade, such as illegitimate trade, um, trans-Pacific financial interactions and, and, and things like that. Um, and to conclude, also it is important that as we fight on the 
Western Hemisphere side as much as we fight in, in Asia to build this new Trans-Pacific regime. One key element of that is we in the U.S. need to strengthen our position in our goodwill, in our faith as a good neighbor within Latin America. And I would argue that there are certain key things that we should see as part of the strategic picture that have to do with immigration and drug policy and other issues. Um, because in order for us to convince Latin America that we, to work together to build this common rule of law regime, um, we also have to have the good faith of those Latin American uh, countries. Um, and in the end, we also need to make sure that the rule of law and a regime of free trade succeeds. Um, if you recall, at the time in which we had the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, that, that wonderful moment that Francis Fukuyama, the historian, called the end of history. Um, what we did not recognize at the time is that the end of history did not sell as gospel religion our partners in the region that the Washington Consensus was right. It gave us in the United States a golden opportunity that Latin Americans were willing to try out in a serious fashion through leaders from Fujimori in Peru to um, to, you know, to, to, to others, that model represented by the Washington Consensus. But in some ways, the failure that we <coughs> had to ensure that Latin America <coughs> succeeded and prospered through applying the Washington Consensus set up the conditions by which that began to unravel for us in recent years. And so as we move forward once again in the 21st century, what I would argue is we have a vested interest not just in convincing the nations to adopt this model, but ensuring that the free trade model and the rule of law model brings success and prosperity and equality. Because it's one advantage to convince nations to try it. It's equally critical to make sure that they realize and understand that prosperity in order for that regime that guarantees that prosperity to be enduring and create the type of century that we all wish to live in. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Evan. That was a magnificent presentation. We're going to open up um, <clears throat> a period for questions and uh, discussion. I would uh, very much appreciate if those who, who want to contribute to this discussion, uh, we provide them with a microphone that's some of our people here go around with the microphone. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, we ask you to please say your name and affiliation. And uh, this is going to be a very interesting exchange this afternoon. Okay. Xiao uh, Yangsha, a correspondent of Wenhui Daily, Shanghai, China. So I have a question about China. And uh, earlier this month, President Obama said during an interview that China will, he believes that China will eventually join the TPP. So the question is, um, uh, what does it mean uh, for the TPP if China join, uh, uh, joins the TPP? And uh, how, what kind of role can China play within the TPP? And secondly, uh, with the accession into the TPP of China, how will it change the, the picture of U.S.-China competition in the region 
and the general U.S.-China relations as well. Thank you very much. I'll take a quick uh, first cut and then uh, have Evan follow up uh, with his comments because he studied this issue uh, in, a, in a depthful way. Uh, first of all, uh, I am a strong and longtime believer uh, in encouraging uh, serious, sustained uh, relations and partnerships and cooperation where possible with China. Our older son uh, has actually lived and worked in China for the past six years, so we, we have a commitment there in a business sense uh, as well as uh, from a policy and political sense. Uh, I think both Armando and Evan, uh, in their comments, captured uh, a good portion of China's interest and engagement in the region and really how I think the TP, uh, TPP is exactly the right step to encourage China to continue to become more integrated and active uh, throughout the world. Uh, President Clinton, in his last year in the administration, proving lame ducks can still fly in his eighth year, uh, was when China was brought into the World Trade Organization, which is really a, a pretty good predicate for the question you're asking. Uh, and that was done on a bipartisan basis here in our Congress, a much broader uh, basis than, than the current discussions of TPP. I think also it will encourage China to raise their standards in terms of trade. It will make it consistent, more harmonious. And I think particularly of some of these issues that both Evan and Armando hit in terms of the rule of law, transparency, and so forth, I think all of that encourages China to move in the right direction uh, and, and a much more responsible stakeholder, to use Bob Zellick's uh, now very well-known term. Having said all of that, there's inevitably going to be a competition with China and the United States, particularly from an economic standpoint. And we have competition with other countries throughout the world, including our <coughs> beloved neighbors to the north in Canada, who are actually very active in the region. So this is not unusual or unhealthy. It's just inevitable. But I, I think competition does not mean does not mean that you can't have a natural cooperation and certainly a harmonious uh, and level set playing field. I have to I have to agree, um, especially that the thing that uh, that Ms. McClarty said is is absolutely key. Um, competition is normal. Competition indeed can be good. We compete with Canada. We compete with many. Indeed, many of the improvements that we have in industry come from competition. And, um, and, and the issue is, what is the structure within which competition occurs? Is that structure a structure that produces benefits and progress? Or is it a structure that brings out the worst of human nature and the possibility of conflict or something worse? And so to me, whether it's, and, and first of all, I think as you recognize, um, the US has never uh, tried to exclude China explicitly from the TPP. And I th think some of the better voices that I've heard um, look wisely to a world in which we hope that, that China is either party to TPP or party to something similar. Um, because at the end of the day, the question becomes, how do we 
and China and other countries live together in this new Pacific century. And I think the key is we need to structure the inherent competition in a way that convinces that um, if there are gains and losses, that it is through an understood and fair process. And I think that is the best bet so that those efforts um, can produce prosperity for, for all involved. So I personally welcome an era in which we have China as a part of a broader transregional uh, trade structure. And it will not be a world in which the institutions and their weights and rules are the same as they are today. China is shaking up the world, but I think they must be a rule of accepted, commonly understood rules and transparency. Um, on, on the matter of the rule of law, before CAPTA we had the Caribbean Basin Initiative. And uh, many of the no people in our referendum would say, why, uh, why do we need CAPTA if we already have this? Well, because CAPTA had uh, many, many, uh, it, it was basically, uh, it had characteristics of being an aid program to some degree. It was, it was unilateral. It was uh, a series of uh, trade benefits the U.S. gave us and that could at the same time be revoked. So the argument for the yes was, well, the reason we should have CAFTA, one of the reasons, is uh, the rule of law. Because this will be uh, a, an international treaty that will give us all the same rules uh, to observe and to play by. Um, with China, I think uh, a similar situation would be a big improvement. Because frankly, one of the things that worries some uh, um, throughout the world, and I would say in Latin America specifically, in our relations with China is that when you deal with Chinese companies, you're usually dealing with the Chinese state. Um, if uh, we have a conflict with the U.S. investment in Costa Rica, we have uh, uh, international laws that uh, uh, will help us solve that con con conflict, but we will be in conflict in, in a legal scenario with the U.S. company, not with the U.S. government. Um, so clear laws, uh, and, and, and it's quite a different thing. Uh, a, a clear set of laws, a clear framework, which is what these agreements uh, can create, um, is a very uh, positive thing and also promotes uh, trust in, relation, in commercial relations. Very good. Um, there is a gentleman here. Yeah. Brian Marshall, I'm uh, semi-retired. And I recall at the time of the NAFTA negotiations, uh, we knew a lot about various facets of the agreement as it was being in the process of being negotiated. That does not seem to be the case with the TPP at this time. Uh, I... Uh, is that a correct impression, or uh, and if so, uh, can somebody possibly say why that might be the case and how you feel about it? Thank you. I'll come in the to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do the same one too. I'll make a, a couple of comments, uh, you're, you're, and then Evan can can follow up in Armando. Uh, first of all, I, I think your your question is a is a uh, timely and thoughtful one. 
I think you are largely right, as I recall it. You remember on the NAFTA that it had been negotiated by the Bush 41 administration, Republican administration, but not uh, fully negotiated, but, but largely negotiated, and then it was passed to the Clinton administration to move it forward to get it ratified with the Congress. Um, we actually had um, much more negotiation left than we anticipated uh, just because of, of the inevitable back and forth and, and how you were going to finalize some of the agreement with members of Congress to get the votes. Uh, I think there was, therefore, because of that two-step, I think there was much more known about the agreement. Uh, one of the criticisms has been that this has been uh, a not as transparent or open agreement. That's really the, the point of your question. It's a fair one. I think Ambassador Froman would argue that he, he doesn't want to put everything out there as he's still negotiating the agreement with these countries around the world, and how do you do that uh, without reaching final agreement. Uh, so th there's, there's understandable concerns. I think all of that can be uh, squared up, if you will, when the Trans-Pacific Agreement comes to vote. It's going to be out there, and that's going to be the fierce battle that I noted. So I think there are some differences, but your questions, your concerns, your sensitivities, I think, are, are, are very good. I think they can be accommodated at the end of the day, and I think, and I think they will be. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you have to keep in mind that uh, this agreement actually started outside of the U.S. Uh, with, the, with the P4. Uh, it involves 12 parties, so in many ways it has been uh, much more complex than, 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 than NAFTA. Um, and in many ways, we, in Washington at least, and, and of course, uh, as, as we all know, nothing actually exists until Washington focuses on it, um, but, uh, but we only have really <laughs> recently <laughs> began to focus on, on, on this agreement. And so exactly as, 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 as Mr. McLarty said, I, I think that uh, we will see – Especially, there is explicitly, I believe it's a two-month provision, yeah. even after the uh, agreement, um, in which I am confident that we'll, there will be, you know, exhaustive opportunities. And of course, NAFTA is now far behind us, and we have not yet gotten to the point of that introspection with with this agreement. We're going to turn to the right wing here, <laughs> yeah. sir. Hi, I'm Raj Boya, a DC resident. My question is to Mr. McLarty. Um, were there any unintended consequences that you could not foresee around the time NAFTA agreement took place? Uh, that's my first question. And my second question is, uh, some opponents of these trade deals talk about potential job losses in this country. I would like to know what sectors you think would be impacted and uh, how many millions of jobs are we talking about and what kind of assistance is going to be in place for them? Thank you. I think uh, to, to respond to your first question in, in terms of uh, the consequences of NAFTA, what was anticipated and, and so forth, um, you know, hindsight's a great substitute for wisdom when you look back. And so there's always, I think, on any decision that any of us make, uh, certain consequences that are likely to be different than we intended. Uh, I think Armando had it just right in his comments in terms of trade. Uh, I, I think it, it, if you look at the imperial data, it, it's pretty hard not to conclude uh, that while the expectations may have been too high in NAFTA, that it has been a net job creator. 
but equally you cannot in both in all three countries but equally you cannot conclude that there was certain dislocation in certain sectors and therefore certain lives and families affected in a very negative way and that's really where you have the basis there there's some political factors and funding of campaigns that come come into this as well but that's the real human element in this trade debate that you're hearing now and we heard on the on the NAFTA but I think Evans comments about a trade agreement being much more broad than just the economic side and the TPP certainly fits in that category but I would submit to you without the North American Free Trade Agreement I think that we would likely have not seen Mexico continue to advance as an outward-looking country and strengthen their democracy uh, and rule of law and their economy. And if you think about the consequences of their not doing that on our southern border, given the size of Mexico, those are pretty potentially serious consequences. So it goes to your other point in terms of assistance to those that have lost their job due to trade, although the big driver of job loss, just think about it, all the journalists that are here, the big driver in terms of job loss and change is technology not trade that that's what's changed the world and so you do have a lot of creative destruction much more so than you saw in the 40s 50s and 60s so I think part of that goes not just to trade adjustment assistance but a much more holistic approach in terms of preparing people for having two three four different jobs in their lifetime and careers that's very very different in terms of job loss and, and the sectors, that's really a, a much longer discussion probably than time will allow today, and it's a pretty specific question. Uh, but I think on balance, you, you have to think as large as these Asian markets are. I mean, 96% of the world's commerce takes place outside the United States in terms of, or at least the, the market potential is, is, is in the 95 96%. I think we've just got a much greater capacity to increase our exports to this region than jobs will be lost here. I did mention about energy, which makes us more competitive, but our export jobs are much better paying. So I think on balance, this will be an economic driver for our country and increased growth in jobs. But we've got to be very sensitive and mindful to jobs lost or dislocated, to, to trade or any other of the major drivers. I see um, we go to the middle of the road now, uh, Dr. Casas. Thank you very much, wonderful panel. <clears throat> I mean, it is, it is much easier to make an argument in favor of free trade uh, in general terms in macro terms. But the fact is that there are, you know, free trade agreements uh, bring or may bring negative consequences for very specific people. No question. And, and we all know that. And therefore the real question, uh, one of the critical questions in this discussion is to what extent are governments in this case the U.S. government, but also the Costa Rican government, <coughs> because this, this, this was an issue that some of the more enlightened voices of the opposition to CAFTA um, uh, brought up, you know, when the discussion was raging. 
to what extent governments are willing to put in place robust uh, programs to ameliorate some of those negative consequences because the track record is not very good when it comes to that. And, uh, and I think that some of them is trust that, uh, that pervades this discussion is, is frankly warranted. Uh, happily, yes. I, uh, the dichotomy between the general good and the sacrifice of some specific uh, interest and therefore the um, consequences on uh, a number of people um, can be illustrated by a debate we're having in Costa Rica just these days. Um, our government is protecting our avocado production and I believe it is doing, it is doing so by invoking uh, sanitary uh, legislation, which I think doesn't really apply. Um, we're blocking out uh, avocado exports through a non-tariff barrier. Um, the reason this uh, illustrates uh, uh, Mr. Casas's point, Dr. Casas's point, is that it, when you look at the statistics of uh, our avocado market, uh, you realize that our local production can only supply 16% of the demand. So that's how specific the interest group is uh, um, that would advocate trade barriers to avocados. And that's how significant the, lar the broader society that is affected by scarcity in price uh, is. So we want, you have to balance out these interests. And yes, uh, perhaps uh, you do need um, to um, introduce government pro programs that can help um, uh, the affected sectors um, adjust. Now, there are two things that one must take into consideration in, in, in this uh, sense. One is that these trade agreements often provide uh, for a gradual uh, uh, integration of, of different sectors into the, the free trade. So there is time um, to make the transition. Uh, even so, there are sectors, groups, uh, that don't take advantage of those windows uh, 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 created by, by the treaties. And, well, uh, you, can't, you can't stop the world to you know, wait until they get off. And uh, um, one, one final thing I would add is that I know that in the U.S. Uh, it's coming up for a vote these days, or I don't know if it was just voted. Uh, you have a program uh, to uh, an adjustment program, right? I think in Costa Rica what we have failed at, Kevin, is a different thing. I think we've had a very successful, successful transformation into an exporting uh, country, our export model. Uh, really, it is a miracle. Um, you know, it's, it's been popular to speak of Chile as an economic miracle, but look at Costa Rica. We have no copper. We have no extraction industry, okay? 
we have none of that riches, and we have done pretty well as an exporter. Where we have failed, I think, Kevin, I, I don't know if you would agree with me, is in integrating more sectors of our society to that bonanza. Okay? And that's where perhaps uh, our, our excellent uh, uh, push into uh, exports uh, may have uh, been much more successful had we integrated other sectors of our society uh, into that effort and, and, and into its uh, benefits. Let me add just one, one thing, if I might, because I think it's important and I think it's certainly appropriate to, to uh, comment on this in the hallowed halls of the Hudson Institute uh, with Ambassador Darren Bloom. I think I'm a strong supporter of TAA, Trade Adjustment Assistance, and I think we need to be sensitive, mindful, going back to your question. But I would also underscore the real crucial point is to have growth in the economy that provides for good job opportunities. After the NAFTA was passed in the, in the Clinton administration, which I'm obviously understandably proud of, but the facts are, are clear, the unemployment rate went from about 7% over time down to about 4%. Uh, people with welfare to work were moved out of poverty, uh, and wages actually had a pretty strong growth during that period. So I think it's important as government targeted, efficiently run, hopefully, government programs are, growth in the economy, sound economic policy is absolutely crucial uh, to, frankly, the well-being of, of all workers, middle class, in the entire country. So I just want to be sure we balance that out as we focus on government programs. Yeah, and just very quickly, I mean, from a political perspective, one of the challenges is always that the losses in jobs uh, due to an agreement, especially with the help of politicians in framing the issue, are often very concrete. You know, you know because of NAFTA, my factory moved to Mexico. Um, but the benefits, um, very fewer people say, I have a job because of free trade. Um, and, and I think in, in many ways, um, while dealing with things like like the, like TAA, as, as Mr. McCarty s suggested, whether it's Costa Rica or elsewhere, um, it's also incumbent on politicians and others thinking strategically to sell the message of those overall benefits so that they can be perceived um, by those in the society who are not you know, PhD economists. We continue in the middle road here. Um, yeah. uh, thanks, uh, Patrick Wilson, and I work for Osage Global. Uh, my question is actually, why do you think there's so much focus on process? I mean, I've been sitting here listening to the conversation. It's all about process. Um, you look back at past trade agreements, whether it was the Australia FTA or the Korea, right, two of the most recent that have passed, they've been overwhelming successes. In fact, it's an embarrassment for the Australian government that everyone's talking about what a terrible deal the Australians made and how America is winning all the fights, right? Why aren't we talking more about that, about those examples? And if you look at, again, the economists who've looked at the Korea FTA also say it's an unmitigated success for American exporters, for high technology, for everything. Why aren't we, why aren't we talking about that? I mean, I guess two quick answers. I mean, one is, is process is how you get to the agreement. Um, now, having, having said that, my understanding is that really the 
positive of TPP is the vast majority of technical issues really have probably been done. I mean, we're, we're down to apparently the, some of the harder issues where uh, you know senior uh, senior leaders probably need to get together and and, and 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 play poker. But I think your second point is also very important, which is um, the use of concrete examples to to to, to sell what can be achieved and and what the what the benefits are. Because I mean, I think you know our minds are wired that way. Concrete examples are what help us to understand why we should move beyond our, our fears as Armando, you know, and, um, and, and embrace something that could bring a, a positive. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, number one, the proponents of TPP need to get you involved and, give, and let you give your, your comments. Those are pretty compelling and pretty persuasive, and I think they're, they're largely right on point. There's a reason that the phrase sausage being made in the Congress is a pretty familiar phrase. Uh, it, it does have a legislative process. That, that's really how you get to the, Sorry how you get to the end goal. Thank you. Um, so I think that's pretty pretty normal. This one has been a little more complicated than most, I, I, would, have to, I would have to admit. But that, that's really how the, the legislative process uh, works, and I, I think that, that's just inevitable. I do think, though, that Evan made a very good point in terms of this trade agreement, as in all trade agreements, as I tried to note in, in the, speaking about the NAFTA, for example, but I do think the security issue and the U.S. leadership around the world has resonated with the Congress and, a, and a, it, it kind of going back to the message level that, that then you have to get out of the process to get it passed. But I think those have been compelling uh, and persuasive arguments put forth. <coughs> okay. We're open for business here. At the end, uh, the gentleman at the end of the. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Um, my name is um, Kakumi Kobayashi with the Kyodo News of Japan. And I would like to ask you, uh, Mr. McCarthy, and uh, any others in the panel, of the prospect of the TPP remaining part of the TPP negotiations. It's, um, as you said, um, a lot of the things happened in the Congress in the past weeks. and. Uh, uh, that makes me suspect the, uh, some TPP partners, or um, many of them, um, may have come to think the, uh, the domestic support uh, of the President Obama or his in political influence is n was not as uh, strong as we thought earlier, or not stable as we thought. So uh, do you think these kind of situations, um, uh, how do you think the, these kind of circumstances affect the last stage of the TPP negotiations? Or in other words, do you have any concerns? It might take longer than the, before the conclusion. Thank you. It's a good question. Uh, I think the momentum is with the administration uh, on uh, TPP uh, as TPA passes as it goes forward with TAA. Uh, I think there's still some battles ahead, as I, as I noted. But, but, you know, this is really part of any working democracy. You're going to have these uh, different points of view and hopefully get to the right answer. That's, that's what, that's the hallmarks of any working democracy. But I, I think at the moment, the way this has played out, uh, it has strengthened the president's leadership at the moment around the world uh, with the, not only the participants in TPP, but much more broadly. I would just 
just to add to that, uh, I think uh, one of the things that we can recognize now is, is that as we move beyond the political stage, presuming that President Obama signs, signs the bill, uh, really some of the next uh, technical work passes into the hands of, of his trade team. And so in many ways that, that makes the, in, in at least at the coming stage, uh, that the specific issue of his leadership a little bit less of, of a point of emphasis. Now, having said that, uh, one of the things that concerns me a bit is, depending on the timing, of how long it takes to finalize these negotiations. We may be getting into the evaluation period um, and the final vote very close to U.S. presidential elections, which uh, obviously could be a, a, con a concern. But from a Japanese perspective, uh, one of my hopes is that now that we have essentially the, the message that, um, you know, the Republicans uh, and some Democrats are, are behind the president, and, and there is the authority to go forward, that this will give us the leverage to work with, for example, uh, your government, um, to get over some of the concerns regarding agriculture and, and the auto industry, et cetera, um, to, to basically bring – because I think – from a security standpoint, um, it is in the United States' strategic interest to work with Japan and other like-minded countries to come to an agreed-upon set of rules. And so my hope is that this political message allows us to get beyond these issues to, to work those, those details out. One last question. Most Moscus, Blue Star Strategies. Um, my question is going back to Latin America. Um, Mr. Gonzalez, you talked a little bit about at the beginning about um, Costa Rica's labor laws and how you have very, very strong labor laws. But for specifically other Latin American countries, I lived in Peru for about a year, who don't have necessarily the intellectual property laws or the labor laws or the environmental regulations in place. Is the TPP going to address that in those countries? And if so, are there going to be enforcement regulations in place within the regime, or is that kind of completely still off the table at this point? Thank you. Um, it has been said that there is the intention uh, to make the, the TPP um, a, a higher standard uh, agreement in these matters. Central America is at the moment uh, not participating in the negotiations. Um, the agreement is being negotiated with a model that will be open, it will allow other countries to join. So if, in effect, the good intentions of elevating uh, labor and uh, uh, environmental practices also um, uh, through um, the agreement uh, are, in effect, uh, successful, these uh, intentions, well, eventually, if Central American countries decide to join, they will, be ha they will have to uh, bring up um, their standards. Uh, there are already uh, beneficial effects, I believe, of, uh, of CAPTA. Um, and I do understand that in our region, there is uh, much to be done um, in, in these matters, right? Because, yes, not all countries are up to Costa Rican standards, which are quite mm, high. If I could just make one comment, um, although uh, there's a there's a 
wide disparity between labor laws. Not all Latin American countries have bad labor laws. Um, oftentimes, one of the difficulties is whether they enforce those labor laws or, or, or not. I mean, uh, my wife is Colombian. I can tell you that Colombia has some really good labor laws. Um, but that also raises another possible follow-on for the United States in that working in an interagency context, one of the ways that we can engage and benefit our partners is to help strengthen institutions to work towards this common benefit. Uh, yes, one one last thing. Uh, well, uh, we have good laws and we enforce them uh, in in Costa Rica. Uh, but uh, Evan is, is uh, has made a very good point. Uh, one of the reasons uh, uh, to an argument in favor of these agreements is precisely that labor uh, laws and respect uh, for labor rights have to do with leveling the playing field, which affects trade. So every country has an interest in making sure that the playing field is as level as possible. And the beneficial influence of trade partners who have uh, more respect for labor and environment uh, will be spread out throughout the whole partnership. So that is an argument for uh, free trade, not against as it has been tried to be turned. Very good. We thank you very much for having joined us this afternoon. And uh, I thank very much our brilliant uh, speakers uh, team we had here. And why don't we recognize that with a final round of applause.